A reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly remembering before God and our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith in God has become known, so that we have no need to speak about it. For the people of those regions report about us what kind of welcome we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's pray. Our God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable and pleasing in your sight this morning. You are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Let's keep that going during the Easter season. It's, uh, you know, Lent was 40 long days, and the Easter season 
is actually 49 days. And I am admittedly no mathematician, but that's more, right? Easter is not supposed to be a one-day celebration tacked on to the end of Lent's long winter. Easter is a seven-week feast. And as N.T. Wright says, if Lent is a time to give things up, Easter ought to be a time to take things up. And so that's what we're doing this Easter season. Uh, we've just come through Lent, and we've just finished our sermon series on the seven deadly sins, which was all about learning to see ourselves and know ourselves more deeply as sinners, so that A, we would come to know God's love and mercy toward us more particularly, more personally, more powerfully, and B, that we would grow in our ability to turn away from sinful habits and patterns in our lives. It was all about giving things up, right? Well, now that it's Easter, we're turning our attention to taking things up. Specifically, we're talking about taking up resurrection life. This new life that God has made possible for human beings in our world today through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the sending of his Holy Spirit. This never-ending life that is not undone by death. It's a life that's marked by self-sacrificial love of God and neighbor, not by our self-interested using God and neighbor for our own purposes or disregarding them if we don't find them useful. Eugene Peterson describes practicing resurrection in this way. The practice of resurrection is an intentional, deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, life out of death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus life. And admittedly, that's a little abstract, but he goes on and he gets more practical about what practicing resurrection actually looks like and where it happens, and he writes this. This practice is not a vague wish upwards, but comprises a number of discrete but interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way of life, real life, in a world preoccupied with death and the devil. These practices include the worship of God in all the operations of the Trinity, the acceptance of a resurrection born from above identity in baptism, the embrace of resurrection formation by eating and drinking Christ's resurrection body and blood at the Lord's table, Attentive reading of and obedience to the revelation of God in the scriptures. Prayer that cultivates an intimacy with realities that are inaccessible to our senses. Confession and forgiveness of sins. Welcoming the stranger and outcast. Working and speaking for peace and justice, healing and truth, sanctity and beauty. Care for all the stuff of creation. The practice of resurrection encourages improvisation on the basic resurrection story as given in our scriptures and revealed in Jesus. Thousands of derivative, unanticipated resurrection details proliferate across the landscape. The company of people who practice resurrection replicates the way of Jesus on the highways and byways named and numbered on all the maps of the world. This is the church. Practicing resurrection. 
that's what we're talking about this Easter season. And to help us do that, we're going to be reading through the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which we just read the first 10 verses of. It's one of the earliest of Paul's letters that we have, which is to say that of all the books in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians, uh, it's like maybe the first or second of those to be written. It's old. It's probably coming from a time that's about 18 or 20-ish years after the events of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which is another way of saying it's coming from a time that's about as far removed from those events as we are today from the events of September 11th, 2001. And I don't know about you, but I remember that day quite vividly this many years later, even though I was absolutely nowhere near ground zero, unlike some of you I know who had a far more personal, up-close experience of that day than I did. And I, I know some of your stories. For me, I was in Athens, Georgia that day, 825 miles away from the World Trade Center, 575 miles away from the Pentagon, yet still I can tell you what time I woke up that day. I can tell you exactly what I did that day, who I was with, what we talked about. I can tell you what the, what the mood on campus was like at the University of Georgia. I can tell you exactly what time classes were canceled and what thoughts and fears were going through my head and heart. You can too, I imagine, if you're over 28, 25, 28 years old. It's a pet peeve of mine when people start talking about how the New Testament can't possibly be reliable because it's written from a time so far removed from the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's just not true. But I digress. We're not talking about the reliability of the New Testament witness right now. We are talking about practicing resurrection now. And we're talking about 1 Thessalonians, which is this letter that Paul wrote to this fledgling church that he helped to start in the city of Thessalonica. He's writing this letter not to correct some problem that he sees there. He's writing to them not to address division or strife in the church as he is in some of the other letters that we have from Paul. He's not writing to defend his own authority as an apostle. It seems that they recognize his authority. He has, he has nothing like that to take issue with in this letter. He's writing to encourage the church because the reports that he's been hearing since he had to leave the city are that the Thessalonians have been practicing resurrection, so to speak. They've been faithful, but they've also suffered persecution for their faithfulness because they're practicing resurrection inside of a world that doesn't. And so he writes them this letter because he wants them to persevere and not lose heart. He's writing probably from Corinth, about 350 miles southwest of Thessalonica, where he spent a couple of years shortly after he left the Thessalonians. And this letter that he writes to them, it's warm, it's affectionate, it's emotional, it's genuine, it's full of references to Paul's own prayers and genuine concern for his readers. And as we go along, we'll say more about the particular situation in the city of Thessalonica into which Paul is writing. But as we consider these first 10 verses, I really just want us to focus on a couple of things. First, the resurrection character of the Thessalonians' faith. And then secondly, three practical ways that the Thessalonians are practicing resurrection that are instructive for us who seek to do the same. So first, let's just look at the resurrection character of the Thessalonians' faith. Paul commends 
them for their faith. And this faith that he commends them for and for which he gives thanks to God is their open-armed, open-hearted embrace of both the news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, what we call the gospel, and the messengers who brought the news. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Silvanus here in verse 1 is just another form of the name Silas, the Latin version. Same guy who was there at the founding of the church. And you can read that story in Acts 17, but basically what happens is Paul, Silas, Timothy, and their crew, they come into Thessalonica after a rather dramatic departure from Philippi, which is another story for another day. But they roll into Thessalonica, and Paul does what Paul does. Paul's going to do Paul. He comes to the synagogue, and he, and he goes on the Sabbath to reason with the people there, to tell them the news about Jesus, and to explain from the scriptures why the Messiah of Israel had to suffer, die, and be raised. And so Paul does this. Um, he does this like three weeks in a row where he shows up on the Sabbath. And what happens is a few of the Jewish people there in the city believe him and begin to join the group. Most of them apparently don't. But what's really interesting is that a whole bunch of the non-Jewish people in the city believe the message and join the group. So what emerges in this relatively short amount of time is this mixed community of Jewish and non-Jewish people, mostly non-Jewish, gathering around these Jewish guys from out of town who've come with a Jewish message um, saying that the God of the Jews has done something new in Jesus and that now this community of God's chosen instruments of his blessing in the earth is made up of all kinds of different people. That God has sent his spirit to all kinds of different people, not just Jewish people. And so all these different kinds of people are now to be one community as equals and do life together. And you don't have to take up the Jewish law in this community in order to be properly following God. And apparently this doesn't sit well with the majority of the Jewish community. And so they, as Luke tells us in Acts 17, they get jealous and they start to complain to the Roman officials. Uh, and they basically say, hey, these guys are doing stuff that the, um, the imperial law doesn't permit. Um, and so they get thrown in jail. And there's a whole thing about how they have to post bail and stuff and get out. And they have to leave town. And um, that's how the story goes. It, you know, it kind of doesn't end well. But that's, that's the story of how this church gets born uh, in a pretty quick, we assume, amount of time. And then Paul, Silas, and Timothy have to go after they get bailed out of prison for um, what, they, what appears from the outsiders looking in to be uh, inciting a kind of uprising, which was probably just saying that the people who were listening to their message stopped going to the emperor cult and worshiping the emperor statue, which they were supposed to do in the city because the emperor had given them free city, free city status in exchange for being worshipped as the son of God, the bringer of peace to the realm, and all this stuff. So they stopped doing that. It gets them in trouble, and they have to leave. So the resurrection character of their faith, this community that grows up, their faith is this faith in the message of the risen Christ brought to them by the apostles who are preaching a message of resurrection and the spirit that has come on all God's people in the wake of that resurrection. And what they're seeing is that this community that's growing up is beginning to live in the earth in a way that fits a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that is different than the one of the emperor. 
And and what Paul says as he's encouraging the Thessalonians as they're facing persecution for what they're doing, he's saying, we know that you're among God's chosen people because when you received the message, you received it, not just by hearing it, but you received the spirit of power. In other words, when we came and started saying things among you, it wasn't just that we were saying things and you you were hearing things, but God was doing something. That the risen Christ who is at work in the world is doing something now among you by his spirit and we've seen it. And not only have we seen it, the world is seeing it. The news of your faith and your example is rippling out into the region to where we're hearing news about you guys and your life and your neighbors are bearing witness to the reality of your faith. And he says, if I'm going to describe that faith, what it looks like, he says, it's this triad of faith and love and hope, which is a triad that we see elsewhere, right? That's a famous one. In 1 Corinthians 13, you hear, and the greatest of these is love. Here in this this, um, particular piece, hope is the one that comes kind of with the exclamation point at the end because they're suffering people. Um, they're, They're needing to bear up under the weight of burdensome suffering. And so hope is one that pops out in this particular letter. But this triad of virtues is something that's important to Paul. And he says that this is what resurrection life looks like. Faith, hope, and love. Rowan Williams has a really beautiful piece on faith, hope, and love in his book, Being Disciples. He talks about Christian faith as a transformation of our understanding of how we make sense of things. It's a transformation away from being confident in some system of propositions that we've, like we've mastered it and figured it out. And it's a transformation away from our confidence in our ability to master the truth and toward a confidence that we can be mastered by the truth, a confidence in a dependable relationship with God, a relationship of trust. And he talks about Christian hope as the transformation of our memory, of how we relate to our own past and present in light of God's promised future. A confidence that there's real continuity in God's promise, that all that has happened, all that is happening now, and all that will happen is held together in God's unifying gaze same God who looks upon all the past, the present, and future and holds them together in his own heart and mind, who loves us all the way through, holds the whole story of your life as well. And William says, Christian love is a transformation of our desire, how we relate to what we want, away from a consumer mentality of I'll have that one to the receiver mentality of being open to joy and delight in that which we are given. Love, William says, is an expression of the freedom to receive. It's more than doing good. It's delighting in that which God finds delightful. And the only generator of love is the experience of being loved. We love because he first loved us. So the resurrection character of the Thessalonians' faith is evident in their faith, their hope, and their love, which is is evidence of the spirit at work among them, which is the spirit of the risen Christ, which has come to them by the ones Jesus himself has sent as his apostles out into the world. So how do we cultivate 
resurrection life among us? What are practices we see in the Thessalonians in this passage that might help us take up concrete practices of living into this ourselves? The first, if you look at verses five through nine, is imitation. Imitation. Paul commends the Thessalonians for becoming imitators of us and of the Lord, the us being Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the ones who've come to them. And basically what he's saying is similar to what he says elsewhere, right? It's like we become followers of Jesus not simply by some sort of scholastic model of information download where we get the right principles of Christian living right and then push play on our lives, but we're apprenticed into discipleship. We become followers of Jesus by following followers of Jesus. The Christian life is more caught than taught, and so we ride along. And what he's saying is, you guys have, you've been riding along with us. You've let our way of following Jesus rub off on you, and that is good. You've bought in, and your full tilt, 100% buy-in to this way of doing life is having major results around you. Just look at the fruit as other people are watching your lives, and they're saying, these guys are legit. The Thessalonians are authentic, sincere followers of Christ. He says, you're imitators of us and of the Lord. But also, not only are you imitators, but you're being imitated. (laughs) Because these other people who are watching your life, they're beginning to imitate you as word gets out and your example gets out. And so this is the way that the life of Christ begins to ripple out into the world as followers of Jesus beget followers of Jesus through this ride-along apprenticeship way of living together. And it's important, I think, for us to reflect on imitation because we all imitate people. I mean, you know, we know that that's how, like, infants learn how to become human beings, right? It's like it's through this mimetic imitation sort of way of, of learning this monkey see, monkey do uh, baby see, baby do kind of way of, of living. That's like much of what happens in my household presently as I have small children and I find them copying me sometimes on things that I would rather them not copy me on. But that's kind of the point, right? People are copying you and you are copying people. So, let, so the question that we need to sit with is whom do you imitate? And there's an intentional and unintentional facet to that question. Who do you try to imitate? That's one way to ask the question. Like, who, <laughs> whose podcasts do you download? Whose books do you buy? What guru do you look to to be like, this one is killing it, I want to live like that, right? We imitate on purpose, but we also imitate not on purpose all the time. It's called culture. We rub off on one another, and there's stuff that we do all the time that we don't think about ever because we just copy one another, and we've been doing that, and so things are normal, and other things are not normal, and we do the normal ones because we imitate one another. But some of the things that we receive as normal, Paul and Silas and Timothy might write a letter to us saying, don't mimic those things. Normal isn't all it's cracked up to be. Practice resurrection, not normal. There's a different way. There's a different life. 
So we look at how we imitate the herd. We can look at how we imitate superstars we identify as people that we want to live like. But we also need to think about this. Who imitates you? And when they do, what happens? The people who imitate you, the people who are looking to you for an example of life, what do they see? And then what do they do? The invitation of the risen Christ and of his spirit is to so imitate Christ and his followers that we become examples that when people imitate us, they find life and joy and contentment and peace. That they find relational wholeness and not division. That they find the good stuff, not simply the broken stuff. And of course, we all do this imperfectly, but the invitation is to ride along and to do it in the first place. So imitation is the first practice for us to take up this Easter. So think about this, homework, right? Find someone to imitate or find people to imitate that are, that are good ones. Like think about it. Who are those mature followers of Christ where you say, if anyone in this earth has wisdom, it's that person. And find ways to ride along. And then be willing when someone comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, I think I want to ride along with you. Be willing to let them because this is how it works, right? We're following, we're imitating, and we're being imitated. The second practice that they take up that is instructive for us is this practice of turning their service and effort and trust away from idols and onto the living and true God. As Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody, right? Our, our energy is aimed, and it's churning. It's aimed at something always. There's no way to turn it off. We can't go into non-serving mode. The question is simply, whom are we serving? And so what happens here in Thessalonica is that those who, have been, who are now serving the true and living God and turning from idols— they are actually, it, that feels so old, right? That feels like a, a million miles and, and, and a whole other world away, and it, it kind of is. But basically, what they're doing is a lot more practical than spiritual in some ways, if that makes sense. It's, they live in a world where the ordinary, normal thing to do, like the way people do stuff and the way things just work, is to participate in the emperor cult, to be part of the whole thing. And there's a whole social order and a whole economy and everything that runs on this. And so, like, be a team player. You're a Thessalonian. Do what the Thessalonians do. It's the culture. It's normal. Idolatry is normal. And so when they turn from idols, they're doing something that's not just like they stop going to this church and they go to this church. It's like sticking a, a, a stick in the spokes of a wheel where their, their ability to participate in the machine is like, you know, is halted in a jolting sort of way because they have now pledged allegiance to a different king. And so that's hard. And it causes trouble because it upsets other people who see them doing it and they don't like it. And I think as we're looking at our own life and we're like, well, we don't have an emperor cult and we, don't, like, we just don't live in a world that's, that's ordered that way. We don't. But we do live in a world that's ordered by other kinds of things that are similar. We don't have an emperor cult, but we have other things, right? The pastor in New York, Tim Keller, has famously identified money, sex, and power as our, as our chief idols of our age. In a community like this, you could probably add education, right? Um, intelligence or insight. 
you know, in parentheses, wokeness or whatever. The things that we, that we, that we basically turn to to be okay in the world. Um, they're the things that we trust for our future, like money or your education. Um, they're things that we think will serve our self-directed purposes, your CV, your pedigree, whatever. They're things that we think will help us create an identity for ourselves and make us secure in the world or help us to avoid pain and find pleasure. These things that we think will give us life, those things that we think will deliver, those are the idols of our age. Money, sex, power, education, intelligence, reputation. You know, you can start naming these things. Family, healthy kids, whatever. There's all kinds of stuff that we look to and we put our eggs in those baskets, right? Jim Carrey, I I came across this quote from him recently where he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. It's interesting to hear that coming from a guy like him. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that I've been reading kind of slowly and savoring over the last several months, he says that what hinders or shuts down kingdom living is not the having of such provisions, but rather the trusting in them for future security. We have no real security for the future in them, but only in the God who is present with us each day. And that's what I think Paul is getting at in the letter. It's turning from idols to the living and true God is to turn from essentially empty promises to real promises, from dead things to the living God, to things that can't possibly give us what they promise, to the one who in Christ has made all of his promises yes and amen and says, I have included you in all of it. And so we, we have to recognize that we participate in these idolatrous ways of living and we have to recognize they're difficult, they're hard to see, they're hard to turn, turn away from partly because it's kind of, they look so normal in our lives that it, it feels like it's not actually a problem. Um, but the invitation to practice resurrection is the invitation to live by trust in the living God who is here rather than by sight and by our own power and by carving out whatever life we can by our own efforts to receive as a gift that which we could never even possibly dream of achieving by our own efforts. Turning from idols to the living God. And the last practice that we see in the Thessalonian faith, in the Thessalonian church, is this waiting for Jesus. If you look at verse 10, we see that practicing resurrection, it involves assuming this posture of waiting, of this prayerful patience and contentment and trust that Paul models for them in his own prayers as he writes to them about how he's been praying for them. He wants them to live a life as they have been of steadfastness and perseverance, looking to Jesus and not the emperor to be their deliverer. As he brings up this piece about wrath at the end, he's bringing it up because they fear the wrath of the emperor because it's promised, right? This is fascinating because the, the news of the emperor, the way that this, the literature goes around the emperor, it's all the same buzzwords that we hear in the writings of Paul. There's like a gospel of the emperor who's the savior and the son of God to be worshiped. He's the bringer of peace to the realm and the wrath of the emperor comes upon those who oppose the peace of Rome. And Paul picks up all those same kinds of buzzwords to bring a gospel of a different sort of son of God, the son of the living and true God 
who's bringing a very different kind of peace, a much bigger peace, to a very different kind of realm, a much bigger realm. And so what he's saying is that this invitation to practice resurrection is an invitation to not fear the wrong things because ultimately they can't touch you. That this God who has revealed himself in Jesus, for whom we wait, this one who has been raised, this one who's coming back to overthrow and undo everything that threatens the justice, beauty, peace, and wholeness of God's world. And what has happened to Jesus and his death and resurrection is something that has to happen to the whole earth and all of us in it. We have to pass through death and to be granted new life that lasts forever so that all of creation can live as God has intended it from the beginning. And this one, Jesus, the son from heaven, the risen one, is both the dispenser and the deliverer. The dispenser of and deliverer from that wrath that is coming, which is nothing other than God completing the work of removing all the evil, all the injustice, all the hatred, all the strife, all the contempt for one another, all the neighbor-hating, God-hating ways that we live against one another, removing everything that threatens all that is good and beautiful and true and making the work complete so that life may last forever in a world that is good. That wrath will purify the earth and for all who are taking refuge in the shadow of the wings of Christ will know nothing but his peace in that day. And that is the message Paul wants to get across to a church that's feeling the heat of persecution from a big bully. And he says, don't forget who really has the power. The risen one holds your life. And that's the good news, my friends. That's, that's as true for you and for me today as it was for them then. So where in your life do you need to know that peace? Where do you need to know that those places where you chase after life tirelessly, they're, they're just empty. But that doesn't mean that your life is empty. All that you have is right here in Christ. All that you need, every blessing in heaven and on earth is yours in him. The invitation is to simply receive the gift of Christ and to enter into this practice of resurrection life. And so that's what we're seeking to do this Easter as we work our way through this letter to the Thessalonians. May God give us grace to do just that. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks that you hold in your gaze all that is past, present, and future. And that as you look upon us and you look upon everything about our lives, you look upon everything about world history and all of the evil and brokenness, all of the violence that has been done, all the traumas that we've suffered and all the ways that we've inflicted harm and pain on one another, you look on all of this mess and yet you still see the creation that you love and you still see children made in your image whom you long to bring home. And so you've come to us in Jesus who died and was raised and who sent his spirit 
and you call us to join him in this everlasting life now. Would you give us grace to practice resurrection? And would you open our eyes that we may see the glory of your presence in our midst and open our hearts that we may know the power of your love. Through Christ our Lord, the risen one.